Let's pray. Father, we do love you. Lord Jesus, we do love you. Holy Spirit, we do love you. And what we want more than anything at our best, by your grace and with your help, is for your name to be glorified in all the earth. And we recognize that as we spend time together in your word, considering not just who you are, but what you've done for us, we recognize that this is the first step to building us up into the kind of faithful saints that can actually be used to glorify your name. So God, help me to speak well, help your people to hear well, and help anyone who may not know you to have the eyes of their hearts and their ears opened so that they can see and savor the truth and the beauty and the goodness of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and open up to the book of Exodus. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Black Pew Bible in front of you. You're also welcome to take it home and read it. If you're like me and you didn't grow up reading the Bible, uh, Exodus is the second book at the beginning. The chapter numbers are the big numbers, and the verse numbers are the little numbers. <coughs> I, uh, I saw something online this week that really blew my mind, made me feel old. Uh, the 90s are to today what the 70s were to me when I was a kid. That's crazy. First of all, it's not true. It can't be. But it is, right? And it got me thinking, you know, you stroll down memory lane, catharsis, you know, uh, the 90s, definitely the best decade, amen? amen? Amen. One of the most common tropes that I remember from TV shows and movies in the 90s was the record scratch freeze frame trope. Do you remember that? You, you drop into a TV show or to a movie and the, you drop in like right in the middle of the action, right in the middle of some pivotal or important scene and then all of a sudden record scratch, freeze frame. The narrator comes in and he goes, yep, that's me. You're probably wondering how I got here, right? Okay. Some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about, right? But, but it was a really clever way of telling a story. It was, it was like saying, hey, in order to understand this story, you really have to go all the way back to the beginning. And, and I think that that's true of the book of Exodus. In order to understand what happens, even at the very beginning of Exodus, we have to go back a little bit. But before we go back, let's start by reading this morning's text. Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. I'll read aloud. Follow along with me in your Bibles. These are the names of the son of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. 
But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. It's completely sufficient for everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. Amen? Amen. So the book of Exodus, it's interesting. It, it begins not in the beginning, right? Genesis, right? In the beginning. It begins in the... Exodus does not begin like that. As a matter of fact, the first word in the book of Exodus is in the Hebrew, uh, the word that can be translated as now or and. You may not see that in your ESV Bibles or if you have an NIV, you may not see that. In a more literal translation like the NASB, you will see it. It's the first word in the first verse of Exodus, now or and. And it begins like this because the book of Exodus is a continuation of the book of Genesis, right? Now, this might lead you to think about the New Testament, right? There's another, this happens kind of all throughout the Bible. It even happens all throughout the Pentateuch. The first word of every book of the Pentateuch, other than Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, it all is this word that translates as now or and because it's the daisy chain of a story. In the New Testament, you see this with the Gospel of Luke and Acts, right? The Gospel of Luke is the story of Jesus' life, and ministry, and then the book of Acts begins where Luke leaves off. You can think about it as the sequel to the, to the gospel of Luke. And that's the same thing with Exodus. It's a, the sequel or the continuation of the book of Genesis. And in order to really show you what I mean, turn with me back to the book of Genesis. Just flip over a few pages back to Genesis 50. Look at verse 26. So, Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So what you see is that the the book of Genesis ends with the death of Joseph, and the book of Exodus begins also with the death of Joseph. Now, that's a good place to start, right? Just see the connectivity between Genesis and Exodus that's a good place to start. But if you really want to understand the book of Exodus, you have, to, you have to go back even further. You have to rewind even past Genesis 50. You have to go back before Joseph and his life and ministry. And you have to go back before Jacob. And you have to go back before Isaac. And you have to go back before Abraham. You even have to go back before Noah. You have to go all the way back to the first man, Adam. And if you do, if you rewind that far and you make it to Adam you see that one of the main patterns of the entire Bible, but the main pattern of the book of Exodus, begins to emerge there with the story of Adam. And that is the pattern of exile and exodus. Exile and exodus. So let's, let's start with exile. Let's think about that. What is an exile? To be exiled is simply to be cast out. Right? You see this all throughout the scriptures. You see peoples and nations being exiled. You have the nation of Israel being exiled out of the land under the disciplining hand of God. They end up in exile in Babylon, which our brother Russell referenced earlier in the service. You also have the apostle John being exiled to the island of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. But the very first exile in scripture 
is not in the New Testament. It's not halfway through the Old Testament. It's actually right at the very beginning of the entire thing. It's right in the first chapters of Genesis. So just turn back with me even further in your Bibles. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. Chapter 2. This is the lead up to the exile. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Okay, so there it is. God creates the garden. He puts Adam along with Eve a little bit later in the garden. Now go down to verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So what you see here is that God in his love has put man in a place where he can be cared for by God, where he can worship God, where he can be loved by God, where he can exist at peace with God, right? This is the opposite of exile. This is everything that's good. And you know this story because you've heard it a million times. At least if you're in this church, you've heard it a million times. The story goes like this. God made man in his own image and likeness and placed him in the garden to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth with a reflection of his glory. But then Adam fell in sin. And after Adam fell in sin, what happened? He was put out of the garden. Another word for that is exile. Right? Look at Genesis 3 with me. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This, friends, is exile. Adam has rebelled against the king, and therefore he is no longer fit to live in the kingdom. Right? So that, that kingdom language, that's one way to talk about exile. But as you're going to see as we work through the book of Exodus... That's not the only way to talk about exile. The Bible uses all kinds of different language. It talks about exile as a curse or exile as death or exile as slavery, exile as separation. So, that, so that's exile. But then there's exodus. Exile and exodus. So what is exodus? If, if exile is to be cast out into the curse, then an exodus then, theologically speaking, is when you are pulled out of that exile, when you are rescued from that exile, when you're, when you're saved from that curse and you're brought back into the fold of God's blessing. So Christians, we talk about the good news of the gospel, right? We talk about the gospel is called the good news because exile, curse, death, bondage, slavery, these are not the final words from God regarding the consequences of our sin, Right? What you see from the very beginning of the Bible is that even as man is cast out into exile, God makes a promise and says, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to save you from this. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to restore things. I'm going to destroy the curse. How is he going to do that? You have to read for a long time to find out the answer. But you see the pattern begin to emerge right there, right at the beginning of the Bible. Even as the curse is given in Genesis 3, God makes a promise that he is going to save them from the curse, right? 
So what you see is this exile and exodus, this fall and redemption, this failure and this rescue. It's a pattern that you can trace just all throughout the book of Genesis. You see it in the life of Noah and then Babel and then Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob. And then finally you see it in the story of Joseph. Now what I would like to do is just walk you through exile and exodus and each of their stories, but there's just no time. Okay, so I want to just show you one thing really quick. And the way that God describes himself in the book of Genesis to just highlight how important this theme is for you. Okay, so turn, we're doing some flipping this morning. It's okay, you guys are Bible ninjas, right? Flip with me to Genesis 15. Mom and dad, this is a big part of the discipling our children that we talked about earlier, right? Whether you're using a physical Bible or a Bible on your phone, if your children or your grandchildren are sitting with you and the pastor says, hey, let's look at God's word together and you don't, that's teaching them something. And if you do, that's also teaching them something. Okay, so we're going to Genesis chapter 15. Before we read there, let me just remind you guys of something I think you probably already know. In Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abram, who we know of as Abraham, and makes a covenant with him, right? You remember, a covenant is a relationship grounded in a promise. So God comes to Abram and he says, I'm going to be your God and you are going to belong to me. And then, three chapters later, in Genesis 15, God describes himself to Abraham. He says, I'm your God, and then he adds a descriptor to his name. Listen to this descriptor. Genesis 15, well actually, look at it with me. Genesis 15, verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. There's no, there's no oohs and ahs here, right? What, what, what's, what's so spectacular? What's significant here? Well, this language of bringing out is the language of Exodus. If you don't believe me, just flip on over to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Now, so now we are after the Israelites have been rescued from Pharaoh and from Egypt and from death and from the the waters, right? And God is about to give them the Ten Commandments. He once again reveals himself to the Israelites using a descriptor, right? He adds something to his name. Listen to the language he uses. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's in verse 2, by the way. Sorry, I didn't tell you that. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Do you see? It's the exact same thing. When God is talking to Abraham about rescuing him from Ur, where he was a pagan moon worshiper, he says, I brought you up out of that. That was a land of death. I brought you up out of that. Now I'm taking you to the land of blessings. In the same way, God comes to Israel and he says, listen, I brought you up out of that. You were in exile. I brought you up out of that. I I gave you an exodus and now you are going to be my people. This is so significant, guys. Right? Abraham was alienated from God. He was in bondage to his idolatry. He was dead in his sin. He was separated from from his maker, but then Yahweh calls him out of the land of death and into the land of promise. And this theme is so significant 
that God reveals himself like this all the time. I'm not going to give you all the examples, but he's constantly going back to the Exodus and referring to himself as the God who gave you the Exodus, who rescued you from your exile. Now, you may be wondering, if God brought Abraham out of exile when he was in Ur, which sounds like an onomatopoeia, if it, uh, exile and, sorry, I can't help myself. All the way back in Genesis, Genesis 12, if God rescued them from the exile back in Genesis 12, then how did the sons of Abraham, right, Jacob and, and his descendants and Joseph, how did they end up back in exile in Egypt when we get to Exodus chapter 1? Well, that's where you have to remember that exile and Exodus is a pattern. And that pattern is constantly unfolding, not just throughout Genesis and Exodus, but, but throughout all of salvation history. And the pattern usually goes like this. God rescues his people, and then they drift. He gives them an Exodus, and then they drift. He saves them, and then they drift. They always start, they just sort of slouch back towards exile, right? Like a dog returning to its own vomit, God's people always return to their bondage, return to their curse. And so, after the liberation of Abraham, his descendants end up back in Genesis 47 in exile. And we know that because in Genesis 47, 27, we read this. Moses writes, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt. Now again, there's no oohs and ahs from you. Why? Because, well, you're probably not hearing this the way that an Israelite would hear this, right? When, when you hear the word Egypt, you probably don't think much of it, right? Maybe you start thinking like geography. You're trying to remember where Egypt is on the map and, oh yeah, that's in Africa. I didn't know Egyptians were Africans. Then where is it in relation to Israel and how far did they, right? Or maybe you've been watching too much Netflix and you start thinking about, you know, Egyptology and, 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 and pharaohs and pyramids and all of that stuff. But I'll tell you what the Jews would have thought when they heard that verse. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt. They would have heard death. They would have heard darkness. They would have heard slavery. They would have heard the word exile. Why? Because Egypt in the Bible is the land of death. Egypt in the Bible is not a happy place. It's a place that you need to be saved from. And you're going to see this again and again as we walk through this book together. Just listen to this language from the book of Jude. Jude chapter 1, verse 5. Now I want you to remind you, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So according to the New Testament, and the way it looks back on the story of Exodus in the Old Testament, by the way, Jesus is the one who saved them. We'll talk a lot about that, right? They had to be saved from Egypt. It's not a place where they were happy to put down their roots and call it home and put up a ficus in the corner and, you know, nesting and this is going to be. No, it's a place you have to be saved from. Another place in the New Testament where we see this kind of language is the book of Revelation, right? In the book of Revelation, the beast, whoever that may be, 
come on Wednesday nights to hear Russell Berger's Bible study, you'll find out who the beast in Revelation is. I'll give you a hint. It's Obama. No, I'm kidding. No, sorry. It's Trump. No. Okay. The, the beast in Revelation rises out of the land of Sodom. Is Sodom a good place in the Bible? No. The land of Sodom and Egypt. And out of the land of Sodom and Egypt, the beast kills the prophets of God. And, and you may be thinking, well, Sean, that's, that's highly symbolic, right? That's the book of Revelation. Symbols mean... That's, that's exactly the point, is that no matter where you are in the Bible, in the Pentateuch, in the Psalms, in apocryphal literature, not, not apocryphal, apocalyptic, that was, uh, right? No matter where you are, the Bible seems to picture Egypt as a land of death and destruction and curse. Which means that when we open up the book of Exodus and we begin to read chapter 1, we find something strange. God's people... God's chosen people, God's holy people, God's covenant people are in Egypt. They're in the land of death, the land of curse. That's not good. It's really, really bad. And yet, and yet there is a glimmer of hope in the text. Go back, go back to Exodus chapter 1. Verse 7, here's, here's the, the, the bright morning after the dark night. Verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Again, you have to try to, you have to, try to hear these verses, read these verses through the the lens of an Israelite, right? You've got to try to listen through their ears. Imagine that you're in the wilderness and Moses or perhaps Joshua opens up the scroll and he's, he's getting ready to read to you the story of God's redemption, the story of God's salvation of your people, right? And as he begins to read, you hear bad news right off the rip. Israel is in Egypt, and you know that's bad. The land of the curse, the land of death, the land of the dragon. More on that later. But then you get to verse 7, and you hear that they are being fruitful, and they're multiplying. Now that is a jarring contrast. Why would that be such a jarring contrast? Because the language of fruitfulness and multiplication is not the language of death. It's the language of life. It's not the language of curse. It's the language of blessing. So what's going on here? What's going on here is that Israel is on the verge of an exodus. If you're like me, like I already told you earlier, you didn't grow up reading the Bible. Or if you're like many others, uh, far too many in the church where you maybe did grow up reading the Bible, but you kind of maybe did memory verses for jewels and you're like a wanna crown, but you never learned to like read the Bible deeply, right? Then when you come to a verse like this, and there's nothing wrong with a wanna, by the way. I think Trevor Butcher was going to start an Awana club here at Sixth Avenue. Is that right, brother? No? Okay. 
when you, when you don't learn to read the Bible deeply, you come to this language of fruitfulness and multiplication, and it doesn't mean much to you. But this is another theme that's just, I mean, it's the backbeat, it's the rhythm of Genesis and Exodus, right? So you find at the very beginning of the Bible, you guys know in Genesis 2, you've heard this again a million times, God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And then God blessed them. And what did God say when he blessed them? He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, do you see the similarity of the language? The land was filled with them. But then as you move through Genesis, you see the same theme come up over and over again, the fruitfulness and multiplication theme often for better, but sometimes even for worse, right? So, for example, in Genesis 6, when things really begin to take a serious turn for the worse after Genesis 3 in the fall and, 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 and evil is, is, is multiplying on the earth and wickedness is, is growing deeper and spreading further, in Genesis 6, you read this. And the man began to multiply on the face of the earth. Now, you might hear that and you might think, uh, good, right? I mean, they're doing what God told them to do back in Genesis 2. This is the creation mandate, the fruitfulness mandate. Well, kind of. It's kind of good, kind of not good. You see, in Genesis 2, it was really good because Adam and Eve, untainted by sin, were spreading the holy glory of God across the face of the earth, right? Every new baby was another imager of God, another reflection of his glory. Yes and amen, a million babies per household. But then sin enters into the picture. And what happens is as man begins to multiply, he's also multiplying the curse. He's multiplying death. He's spreading wickedness across the face of the earth. And so in Genesis 6, 5, we read this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And it, he's not just talking about the profundity of the wickedness, like they're weak, because he does talk about that. He says every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. But he also means like it's literally spreading over the face of the earth. They are populating the earth with wickedness. But then right after that, like right after that, three verses later, you come to grace again. You come to the story of Noah, right? Genesis 6, 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So the earth is populated with wickedness. It's growing deeper. It's growing wider. It's a real problem. But then God's grace comes and finds one man and his family, Noah. And you guys know the story of Noah and the ark. It's probably the only story that most anybody ever learns about the Bible, even if they never really spent much time in church. The story goes like this. God floods the earth, killing and destroying everyone and everything with the exception of one man and his family. And this exodus that Noah goes through, why do I call it an exodus? Think about it. Think about it. There's a curse. The curse involves death through waters, and then grace comes through those waters. We'll come back to that. This exodus of Noah is successful, and after the flood, God tells Noah the exact same thing that he told Adam and Eve in the garden. Listen to Genesis chapter 9. 
And God blessed Noah and Noah's sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Do you guys see this? This is the rhythm, multiplication and fruitfulness, right? It comes up over and over and over again in Genesis. It's like the backbeat of the song of Genesis. In Genesis 15, when God promises Abraham that he will be blessed, what does he say? He says that you will be fruitful and multiply so greatly that your descendants will be like the stars in the heavens, so many that they can't be counted. In Genesis 17, when God once again reiterates his promise. If you're wondering, like, this morning, why did we do, like, a covenant renewal? Right? You see it all throughout the Bible. God comes to Abraham. He says, hey, I'm making a covenant with you. And then he comes back to him again and again. He's like, hey, don't forget. I still have this promise with you, right? Genesis 17, God tells Abraham that he will be multiplied greatly. In Genesis 22, right after one of the major crescendos of Genesis, Isaac up on the mountain about to be sacrificed. Oh no, what are we going to do? The, the, the solitary heir of the promise is about to die. Right after that, we read this. God tells Abraham, by myself I have sworn... Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. Praise God, right? Here's the promise. Don't forget, Abraham. I'm going to bless you. Here's your promise. And I will surely multiply your offspring. The theme just comes up over and over again. You see this in the life of Isaac. And the Lord appeared to Isaac that same night and said to him, I am the God of your father. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bless you. And you will have your offspring multiplied. God appears to Jacob, the grandson of Abraham. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and cause you to multiply. You know that this theme of fruitful multiplication is like super significant because it features prominently in every important part of the Genesis story. Right. So, for example, when Jacob, who by this point is now called Israel, he's received his patriarchal name change. When Jacob is on his deathbed, sort of handing off the reins to his son, Joseph. This is what we read. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in his bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, May God Almighty, excuse me, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. These are his dying words, the last thing that Israel wants to say to Joseph before he goes to be with God is, Don't forget the promise. Do not forget the promise that God made with our Father Abraham, he is going to bless us. He is going to cause us to be fruitful. He is going to cause us to multiply. Now, if, you've, if you're reading this the way you should, you read all the way through Genesis and you have that theme in your mind, then you come and you open up Exodus 1. And what do you find there? You find fear, right? Why? Because God's people are in Egypt. They're in the land of death, the land of curse, the land of exile. It's bad. Okay, what are we going to do? Don't worry. We also find hope. Verse 7. 
God's people may be in exile, but they are fruitful and they are multiplying. What does this mean? It means God has not forgotten his promise. The promise that he made to Abraham, the promise that he reaffirmed with Isaac, the promise that he reaffirmed with Jacob, the promise that was affirmed with Joseph. Even though Joseph's dead and there's a new Pharaoh in town and things are about to get really bad for God's people, they are fruitful and they are multiplying because our God always keeps his promises. Oh, Think about what this means for your life, friends. Right? I, think, I think what a lot of us need is, is to spend less time focusing on the, the brokenness that's surrounding us, the pain that we're enduring, the trials that we're going through, the little mini exiles that we experience in our lives. And we just need to look around with our grace goggles and we need to find the evidence that God's promises to us have not been broken, right? Because they're there. They're there. When, when financially you're struggling, when your family has issues going on, when your faith is going through a really tough season of churn, when you're experiencing doubt, when the church is going through certain issues, right? Whatever the case may be, when your health may be failing you, when you lose someone in your family and you feel like, I'm in, I'm in exile here. I don't feel the presence of God. What you need to do is not trust in your feelings. You need to trust in his promises. And if he has made you a promise, there will be evidence of his working in your midst, no matter how bad things may be. And if you truly belong to him, you better believe that however deep, however bad, however painful, however scary this exile in your life may be, there is an exodus coming. Because the exodus has already been accomplished in Christ, but I'm about to get ahead of myself. God is faithful to his covenant promise. His people are not withering away in exile. As a matter of fact, the text says they are growing strong by the grace of God, right? And listen, if you want to know how important verses like this are, all you have to do is read the rest of of the Bible and see how other biblical authors talk about this. So, for example, the psalmist, I'm just going to give you one example. There were like 40. In Psalm 105, verses 23 and 24, the psalmist says this, Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. Right? Think about what this is. This is the song book of Israel. This is the encouragement for God's people. Right? And the Psalms are very often written in a place of brokenness and frustration and anger and confusion and exile. And so the psalmist says, hey, you're not the first one to go through this. This is what God's people are constantly going through. The people of Israel may be in exile, but they are on the verge of an exodus. Now that is thematically all I want to show you from today's text. I want to close with a couple of application points for you. Kind of application, kind of appetizer. Basically, these are just three other things I wanted to say in the sermon, so I'm going to say them now. Okay? Number one, the Great Commission. Look back at verse five. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, 70. So Moses is telling us that when Israel settled in Egypt, there were only 70 people there. Okay, now look at the end of verse 7. 
they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. <laughs> you you got to love how the Bible just kind of fast forwards us like this. Like it just, you know, he was in prison for 40 years and then boom. So, they show up with 70 people and then fast forward. The next thing you know, just a couple verses later, two verses later, the whole of Egypt is filled with them. I, the commentary, some people say millions, some people say hundreds of thousands. Uh, it, the number doesn't matter. What you, sh- you should be thinking about is like a swarm, right? And you're going to see next week that there's so many of them that the Egyptians begin to feel threatened by them. There's a population displacement because of how fruitful this multiplication is. Now, as I was working on this week's sermon, I came across... Uh, I came across an article by a pastor who wrote about this verse at length or this phenomenon at length, and it was, it was good. He said a lot of true things in that article. He said a lot of interesting things in that article. He said a lot of Presbyterian things in that article, but I think he missed the main thing, which is this, the theme of being fruitful and multiplying ultimately finds its fulfillment in the Great Commission. The theme of being fruitful and multiplying ultimately finds its fulfillment in the Great Commission. So, in Matthew 28, you guys know that's where we find the Great Commission. Think about it like this, okay? Jesus, the true and better Joseph, calls together his 11 disciples who, because of his finished work on the cross and his resurrection, are now his 11 brothers. And he calls them to himself and he says, essentially, go, be fruitful, and multiply. Fill the earth. He doesn't say with those words, right? What does he say? He says, go therefore out into all the nations, making disciples of them. But it's the exact same thing. Right? The idea is instead of making babies, you make disciples. Instead of producing physical offspring, you produce spiritual offspring. Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And when you see all nations, you should be thinking the earth, fill the earth, fill the earth. Right? That's all nations all over the earth, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. This exhortation in Genesis 2, to be fruitful and multiply, it reverberates throughout the entire story of salvation. And like every other Old Testament promise and command, it finds its fulfillment in Christ and the church. We read out of Hebrews this morning. If you're like, man, I go to try to read Hebrews and I don't know what's going on. Mikhelzad, Mitchiseldeck, I don't, what's happening? You know, like, who are these angels and the sun? Here's what you need to know about Hebrews. Every promise and command of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ and his church. That's what the author of Hebrews is just trying to show you over and over and over again. The same thing is true for this promise of multiplication and fruitfulness. Now, this is, your, this is your call, 6th Avenue. If what I'm saying is true, and I wouldn't be saying it before the Lord and before my church if I didn't think it was true. If this finds its fulfillment in the Great Commission, then that means that you have the same exhortation 
You have the same exhortation. You must be fruitful and multiply. This is part of the covenant that God has made with you. He expects you to not just merely receive his grace and just kind of hoard it all to yourself. You have to go out and reproduce it. You have to make spiritual children. You have to preach the gospel so that people will be born again. You have to have awkward evangelistic conversations with your family over Thanksgiving and with your coworkers, like as often as you can do it without being called into HR, right? Like you have to go out, be fruitful, and multiply. You have to reproduce children of God. Of course, God is the one who sovereignly does it, but one of the main one of the main ways that God sovereignly reproduces children is by you going and sharing. The gospel, the Israelites began with 70, and then soon they filled all of Egypt, basically overwhelming death. So, we have 92 members here at 6th Avenue. What will the writer of our story say about us if he fast forwards 5, 10, 15, 20, 100 years in the future if the Lord should tarry? Will we go from 92 to 95? I'm not even talking about church, mem- church members, right? I just mean like, like what will happen? Are we being faithful? Are we reproducing? What will someone say if they write our story down in the book? Will they be able to say that because of our faithful, fruitful multiplication, the Lord used us to help fill the earth with his glory as people came to be saved by Jesus? That is my prayer for this congregation, that the Lord would bless us and that we would be fierce and faithful evangelists. The second thing I want us to see here is the sovereignty of God. (coughs) 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 Satan's an Arminian. He doesn't want me to say this. (coughs) 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 Thank you, brother. Oof. I think there was something about that in the screw tape letters. Cause the enemy to choke on water in the pulpit. Yeah, the sovereignty of God. Listen, Exodus is not the story of how God's people saved themselves from Egypt. Exodus is the story of how God saved his people And they were kicking and screaming the entire way. They were faithless the entire way. If it were up to Israel, they would still be in Egypt today, just just slaving away, just bonded, just making bricks, right? The same thing is true of us. If God didn't sovereignly come and save us and rescue us out of our bondage, we would still be on a path to hell. Now... I assume you would be able to get with me on this idea that God sovereignly rescues his people out of Egypt. Okay. But what if I told you that God is also the one who sovereignly led Israel into exile in the first place? Turn with me to Genesis 15. Had to pull out the reserves there. Genesis 15, chapter 12. What? Sorry, sorry, verse 12. (laughs) It's all downhill from here. Genesis 15, starting in verse 12. 
As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They're going to be exiles. And that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. Here's what I want us to see right as we begin our time together in the book of Exodus. The deliverance of God's people was predestined by God. The deliverance of God's people was predestined by God. God was not taken aback by them settling in the land of Egypt. God was not taken aback by them going into exile there. God was not taken aback by their 400 years of bondage. It's not like God was busy doing something over here and then he, uh, the timer went off. Oh, I completely forgot about the Israelites. What's going on over there? I hope the, you know, the cake isn't burnt in the oven. No, he knew. He told Abraham. He said, listen, your descendants are going to go into exile in Egypt, but don't worry. Even though I'm leading, there, leading them there sovereignly, I'm going to rescue them from that. The book of Exodus is a drama of significant proportions but the most dramatic thing about exodus is not pharaoh it's not the plagues it's not the israelites it's not the passover the most dramatic thing about exodus is god himself the way that he is constantly sovereignly working to save his people so like get your hearts and minds prepared to consider those themes over and over again as we work through the book of exodus together and then think about that in relation to your life Think about where you are right now and how you got here. Do you think you sovereignly brought yourself to this place? No. God has been working an exodus in your life since the very beginning. I hope that you have eyes to see it. And then the third thing I want us to see is uh, the exodus for today. The exodus for today. <coughs> Literary critic... Uh, Northrop Fry, he has to be English, right, with a name like that. He once said that the Exodus is the only thing that happens in the Bible. He says the Exodus is the only thing that happens in the Bible. That is a bit of an overstatement. It's a bit of an overstatement, but it's only a bit of an overstatement. The theme of Exodus echoes all throughout Scripture. It is one of the main themes in the Bible. It is the story that in one sense gives shape to every other story in the Bible. For example, the life of Jesus. Why did Jesus have to be baptized? It was a very confusing thing. You remember John the Baptist, right? He said, he said you want me to baptize you, but but you're righteous and I'm a sinner. I should be where you are and you should be where I am. Why do you want me to baptize you? Why did Jesus have to be baptized? You won't understand that unless you understand the way that the Exodus works its way through all of Scripture. But more than that, you have to understand that, that the Exodus doesn't merely give shape to the story of the Bible. It also gives shape to the story of your life. Why? Because the Exodus is something that gives shape to all of the story of salvation. And you are a part of that story. Mind-blowing, right? Like the same story of salvation that God begins here in the Bible continues on in your life. And the theme of Exodus 
give shape to your life, to your experience, to the life of your children and your grandchildren and your family in this church. Just think about it. What are the main themes? Curse, corruption, bondage, death. You go to Ephesians 2, Paul is just saying, that's you. That's you before, before you met Christ, right? You were enslaved to sin. You were under the curse of Satan. You were corrupted in your flesh, right? You were dead and separated from God. You were in your own watery grave in Egypt. But then you met Christ. You met Christ who is the true and better Moses, who led you out of that land of Egypt, and he led you into the promised land. He led you into blessing. He led you into glory. He led you into freedom and life. Friends, Exodus is not just a story. It is your story and mine. Let's pray. God, help us to not only hear this story, but to believe it by faith, to be shaped by it, to hope in it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.